And so I'm going to ask if I could get Connor and your parents, if they wouldn't mind coming up with you, come up here. Uh, Jesse and Jen, if you guys wouldn't mind coming on up here, standing here. Uh, we want to honor our graduates and celebrate them as they are uh, moving on from this pretty important phase of life onto the next phase of life. And, uh, I know that God has a lot in store for, for both of them. And we have a gift for both of them. It is a book called Valley of Vision. Uh, it is an actually leather-bound copy of Valley of Vision. Didn't even know these existed until Matt found them on Amazon. But uh, this is a great book, uh, Puritan Prayers. It is a book that you should not read if you don't want to be convicted uh, or encouraged for that matter. Uh, but very, very excellent book. And this is a gift for you, Jesse. Congratulations. For you, Connor. Well, let's give it up for Connor. I just want to pray for you guys. I know that you've moved on from a, a pretty big thing onto what I know the Lord has in stores, bigger things for you guys. So we're excited for you. Uh, so I'm going to take this time to, to pray for you guys. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, so much for, for Jesse and for Connor, for their lives. Um, Lord, for the efforts that they have put in to, uh, to make it this far. Lord, and now as uh, they look forward to what lies ahead, I pray that you would give them courage. Lord, I know that there's a lot of things that come along with college, come along with the workforce, that come along with uh, just moving on out of high school. That can be scary, intimidating, uh, and challenging in a lot of ways, Lord. But we ask that, uh, that your faithfulness would be true uh, for them in their lives, that they would experience your grace and, and your faithfulness towards them as they move forward. They would preserve them. Uh, Lord, I know that this is a time in, in many uh, students' lives, Lord, whenever uh, they are presented with decisions and, and opportunities uh, Lord, uh, to, to turn away from the things that, uh, that their parents have raised them in. And I know that uh, both Jesse and Connor's parents have raised them well and taught them in the ways of the Lord. And I pray that they would continue in the ways of the Lord. That they would continue to seek your face and grow uh, in maturity and in spiritual uh, life. And Lord, to grow in a relationship with you as they move forward onto the next phase of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. Thank you, guys. Our children's memory verse for today, and uh, I don't know if they're memorizing all of this. If they are, that's very impressive, but I know the children are at least memorizing a portion of Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And in our Baptist Catechism this week is, question is number 37, what is justification? And the answer, if you would read along with me, justification is an act of God's free grace by which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Um, if I could do something uh, as well, uh, real quick before I get into this, and then if you would come back up here. Um, we're going to um, have the people who are going to Nepal on Tuesday. Uh, Jacob, if you would come up here, he's in here. All right. Uh, Josh, Lisa, uh, Cindy. Uh, we need a bid proxy, don't we? Bid proxy, that's okay. No one can replace it. Um, Ben Flora is also going on our trip. 
with us, and Maggie's one with us, and so is Linda. Um, so not here. Uh, but they're not going to the fall. But uh, I just want to just tell you all who is going to be leaving on Tuesday for this trip. And we are so excited. We have new people to take to DePaul and more people to fall in love with DePaul. And that's really exciting. And so I'm going to, if you would just kind of join me, I'm going to pray for us as we go. And it's kind of a commissioning. We want to be a church that sends people out. If it's for a week or for the rest of their life, we want to be a church that's sending people out to bring the gospel to the nation. And hopefully, maybe you'll be joining us next year. And hopefully this will be an encouragement to you that any of you can come. You don't have to be a believer for 20 years to be used by God on the mission field. And we would love to show you what God's doing outside of the city of Indiana. So let me pray, and then I'll get these guys to break out. So Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, to not only be celebrating high school grads as we send them out, Lord, and some to college, some to their professions. But also, Lord, we pray as you send us out even for a short amount of time to bring the gospel to the nation of Nepal, a nation filled with those who have been um, groomed and, and deceived in Hinduism, Lord, and they worship uh, metal and wood and, and plaster and, and, and stone gods, Lord, that do not speak back to them, they do not see them, they do not hear them, they do not understand their prayers. And yet they, they, they devote themselves to these things, Lord. And may they see the truth of the gospel. And may they worship the invisible and living God who created them and loved them and sent their son into the, his son into the world to die. But I pray for these guys, for those who have never been on the field before, who have never had an opportunity like this, Lord, I pray for them. This is a difficult trip. It, it, it seems romantic. It seems exotic. But it's difficult. And it's hard. And you stretch our faith. And you challenge us. And it's good for us. And I pray, Lord, that you will challenge them and that you will grow them in the faith. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, God. So make sure you uh, give them a, a good hug and, and as they leave on Tuesday. And we'll have an early, 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 early morning flight on Tuesday morning from Nashville to Chicago, Chicago to Tokyo, Tokyo to Singapore, and then Singapore to Kathmandu, Nepal. And I don't know if you know, uh, but um, this has been the busiest year on Everest this year. Uh, I had 2,300 people try to climb Everest this year. And there's a picture online, you better go find it. It's a picture of people literally waiting in the longest line on the top of the tallest mountain. It's so weird. Well, five people died this year, but it died this week on Everest because of the line and because it's the tallest mountain in the world and people die on the mountain. So uh, make sure to pray for them. And pray for the people that are climbing the mountain. Um, and uh, our uh, passage is in the book of Luke. I just the Bible. It's the book of Luke, chapter nine. We have a Bible. Luke chapter nine. And I'm going to just say um, this for those of you who have never experienced preaching. Teaching in front of a church like this, um, some of you do because you preach here regularly. It's a very difficult task. It's like writing an essay or writing uh, anything that you, if you've written research papers for school, you you have a you have a um, a temptation to procrastinate, or or sometimes you just look at a blank piece of a blank screen or a blank piece of paper and you really just don't know where to start. You know. You have the passage. Usually what I'll do is on Monday mornings I'll have the kids, at least we'll be working, and I'll start working on the sermon, and I'll bring up the passage. I'll read it. I'll study it a little bit, and I'm like, I have no idea what to do with 
sense. <laughs> and, and a lot of times, it's not until, I mean, I have a basic understanding of what the text is, but I'm like, what does God want to speak to this church through this passage? That, that, that may sound simple, but difficult. Like, you, you, want, you want God to speak something to you through this passage. I don't want to get in the way of the passage. And so you want to be careful that you want to make sure you study it well enough. And a lot of times you just kind of, you're not feeling the motivation. And so if, just to, to kind of tell you, for those who preach here at Redeemer, pray for them. Because it isn't an easy task. It isn't an easy task. Um, and some of us have not done it very long. And, and so it's, it's harder for us because we don't have a lot of experience in this. So if you just remember me and Ditton and Sean and your prayers as we help teach this church. And I also want to say, I'm going to get into the passage eventually, but I just want to, uh, we um, seem appropriate to do this. We are going to have an ordination for Robert Hutchin, but Robert Hutchin is a new elder here at Redeemer Fellowship Church. He is the elder of worship. And let me just say this about Robert. Um, he, um, and this is not to kind of puff him up or anything, but really he is the poster child of this church, meaning what we want to do. We want to disciple guys who, who don't necessarily grow up in, in the church and, and see what God will do with them. And God will do amazing things if you're open and you're willing to be discipled, you're willing to be taught, you're willing to be instructed, you're willing to be in a relationship with other men that are, more, that are, that are smarter than you or in a sense are smarter than you because they're more experienced than you. Um, and that's what it means to, to be a part of the church. And so we're really excited about that. And we'll have a, a bigger ordination night or day where we will ordain Robert. And we'll have family come up here. And we'll pray for all of them. We'll do that this summer. But I just wanted to tell you that, that our church has, has, has affirmed Robert Hudson as a new elder of this church. So it's really exciting for us. And so if you want, he's probably already crying. If you want to just kind of like give him a hug and, and, and just to show how you appreciate him and his ministry here, please do that before, his, before he leaves. Uh, Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 37. The next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seized him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and here and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw the boy to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. 43. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I am so thankful for this morning. So many things to be excited about. But it only comes from you that we get to celebrate these things. Lord, we thank you for Robert and his family. We thank you for Latasha and, and their kids, for their faithfulness to you, and being so so regularly open. Or to your calling to their lives. We praise you.
Lord God, I pray that you would raise up more leaders in this church who will open themselves up to your calling and to you, opportunities that you provide them. And Lord, I, with a humble heart and a sad heart, we pray for the Galloway family, uh, who's a, Kevin who is the pastor of Christ Church up in Michigan City, Indiana, and who Kevin is the pastor of this church. He passed away in a car accident. Pray for his family. I don't know Kevin. I've never met him. He's a part of our social network, Lord. His church is a part of this network. But I pray for the church. I pray for his family, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would, that the church would come around the Galloway family. And, Lord, that you would protect, that you will love. And I pray for that church. Lord, we pray for others who are not here because of traveling and sickness, we pray for them. We pray for those in our, in our church, Lord, and people that are kind of closest to us that really struggle with addiction, either it be alcohol or drugs or pornography or anything, Lord, that many people in our midst struggle with and are addicted to. Lord, we pray for them. Lord, we pray that your love would come into their lives. pray that you would save them if they're not saved. pray that you would encourage them when they need encouragement, Lord. Show your compassion on them. Use your church to show compassion. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We have so many things just to be thankful for. And Lord, I pray that you would bring those to our minds and hearts. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So my, um, I say this all the time, and probably a broken record, but it's, uh, my, one of my favorite authors is a guy named Malcolm Bywell. Um, he's not a Christian writer, I'll say that. Um, he writes for The New Yorker. Um, he's kind of a, I was about to say this, he's, I mean, he's a writer now, people know him for his writing, but he, um, is basically kind of a, a mainstream, in mainstream writing for psychology and these type of things, and some really interesting books, a book called Blink, and, um, um, I was another book he's written, Outliers is a really popular book, um, Tipping Point is another popular book, but, um, so this was his newest book called David and Goliath, and he has a chapter, and he talks about, the power of disadvantage, right? and how disadvantages are actually positive things and good things. Um, so the, 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 the title of the sermon is The Power of Inadequacy, and so he talks about dys, uh, dyslexia, 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 and he says, like, if you're, if you, would you want your child to have dyslexia or not? And most people, most parents would say, no, I don't want my child to struggle in reading. Like, dyslexia is a condition where you struggle to read, and because you struggle to read, you struggle to be able to comprehend as you read, so school becomes really difficult for you. So if you're a child and you're eight or nine years old and you're and you have this learning disability, it's a real struggle as you go through school because if you don't know how to read or you struggle with reading and it frustrates you, that pretty much prevents you in a lot of ways from learning in school. Because there's a lot of reading. I mean, uh, I know if you go to college or teach in college, you you assign a lot of reading or you get assigned a lot of reading. If you're one who struggles with reading, school can be very difficult. And, um, and there's a, a test uh, called Cognitive Reflection Test, or CRT. And this is a basically a short IQ test. Uh, it's like two or three questions. And there's one question. I'm going to see if y'all can get it. You don't have to worry about the answer, but I'm just going to say the question and see if you can figure out the answer. But this, this will be one of the questions on this test. It says, a bat and a ball cost $1.10 in total. The bat costs a dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? That's a, that's a question they would put on this CRT test. And, 
Actually, they, they actually had a study on Harvard and Ivy League students and see how many questions they got right. And most Harvard students got two out of three questions right, right? Um, and um, what they did was to increase the score of the test, they made the test harder. So to increase the score of the test, they made it harder. And how they made it harder was they didn't change the question, the content of the question, they changed the way that you look at it. So they changed the font to light gray, they changed it to italics, and they lowered the font from 12 to 10. So when you saw it on a piece of paper, it was hard to read. So by making it hard to read, people had to concentrate harder on the question to be able to answer the question. Um, they thought more deeply about whatever they came across, and they would use more resources on the problem, and if they had to overcome a hurdle, they'll overcome it better when they're forced to think a little bit harder on the question. Because what we do, when we, when we know how to read so well, we'll read quickly over a question and not really concentrate on it too much. So those who have dyslexia have to, or they learn how to get through school by having this disadvantage or this hurdle. One third of successful, successful entrepreneurs have dyslexia. Richard Branson, who's one of the you know, billionaire, right? Certain a lot of different companies had dyslexia. Charles Schwab has dyslexia. This is something that they've had to deal with in their lives with going through school and having to overcome an obstacle. They learned something in their struggle that proved to be an enormous advantage. So there's power in a disadvantage. Power in recognizing you're inadequate at something. The main idea of the passage, and one of the things I was going to tell you that I read until last week, that we are trying to uh, have uh, sermon notes for you before you come in on Sunday morning. So if you use the app and you go to the sermon page and go to the sermon for this week, you can click on that and you can follow right along there to the sermon notes. The main idea is when a person recognizes their inadequacies, they cry out to the only one who is sovereign, loving, and wise in every situation. When a person recognizes their inadequacies, they cry out to the only one who is sovereign, loving, and wise in every situation. This whole chapter has been the disciples learning about their inadequacies. And, and the, the first few verses of chapter 9 of Luke, they, Jesus sends them out with power and authority to proclaim the kingdom and heal the sick and the demon-possessed, right? We have that opening chapter, the opening few uh, uh, verses there. Then he, he sends them out, they come back, and then immediately after that, they are put in a situation where Jesus tells them to, hit, to feed these, this large group of people. That we, it's called the feeding of the 5,000, but most likely there was 20 to 25,000 people in this group of people. And the disciples say, Jesus says to the disciples, hey, go feed them. And they're unable to feed them. And Jesus provides for them, and they feed the crowd. They're unable to fully understand Christ's mission. When Jesus says that he's going to suffer and die and be rejected by the chief priests and the, the Jewish establishment, they don't understand this. They're unable to understand Christ's greater mission. They're unable to fully understand what Christ was calling them to, right? He says they have to take up their cross and follow him. They don't clearly or fully understand what Christ is calling them to as his apostles. 
They don't, uh, they all, they're, they're unable to fully understand Christ's identity and glory. Like Peter on the mountain during the transfiguration said, hey, why don't we build tents for all three of you, Moses, Elijah, and you, Christ? He doesn't even understand fully Jesus' majesty and glory. The whole chapter has been telling us that these guys that Jesus has called are inadequate. So the first point is, why does the boy have this severe condition? This is a question that really Luke doesn't really ask or answer, but it is an interesting question. Like, as if you read the story in Matthew and Mark, we've learned that this boy has been struggling with this severe condition since he was a child had since he was a child. I don't know if he was born this way or if he has constantly dealt with this his entire life. Why does this boy have this condition? What did he do to deserve this severe condition? So on the next day, this is in verse 37, Jesus and his three disciples left the mountain, the scene of the transfiguration, to meet the crowd and heal a sick boy. They follow the events of the transfiguration by returning from the mountain the next day. <coughs> we have to, when we read the Bible, you have to be good readers. You have to catch some of these things. Again, you're all English readers. The Bible's in English. I mean, your, your book, your Bible is. And you can read over these key, key points. But there's an importance to this temporal marker on the next day. But what happened in the, the story before? It happened six days later, or eight days later, on the Mount of Transfiguration. We had on this particular episode, the next day, they go down the mountain. Jesus knows what's coming next. There's a reason he left the mountain and then went down to the valley the next day. He didn't hang out on the mountain for multiple days. He comes down on the next day to do something in particular, to do something that God has planned in his omniscience that he is going down the mountain to do something in particular. We have, uh, uh, we have um, examples in the Bible in the New Testament, especially of Jesus' humanity, right? We know that the passage in John that he wept. We know um, like the passage in the, in the coming of the sea that he was asleep on the boat, right? We get these indications of Jesus' humanity. We also get these indications of his divinity, right? We see that the mount, the, on the mountain for the transfiguration when his clothes changed and his face was altered. They saw the full majesty and glory of Christ. But here we kind of get an idea of his omniscience. You know we don't get it clearly, but that Jesus chooses to leave the mountain on the next day to go into the valley to heal this boy. We already know from Hebrews 1.3 that the imprint of God is in Christ, that Christ is God. He is the true reflection of God. And when God... When Christ does something in his omniscience, when he knows, when he goes down to the valley, who he's about to interact with, we're shown his omniscience, that he knows all things. So they meet this great crowd. They go down the mountain from the transfiguration on the next day, and they go into the valley. There's a massive crowd. We look at the number of people in the crowd. There's a great crowd. They go from seeing the glory of Christ on the mountain to a tragedy in the valley. The contrast in moves, right? The, the seeing the glory of God on the mountain and seeing Moses and Elijah and now going in the valley and there's a tragedy on hand. The glory of the mountain to the evilness of the world. Where Christ was sent to, where the Christ sent his apostles to, where Christ will send his church to, is to the evil world. 
We have a missionary God, we have a missionary Savior, we have a missionary people. The reason why we as a church go to Nepal because we are the missionary people of God. We go, God sends us, to go into the evilness of the world, to go into the darkness, and to shed the light of Christ. To the disciples and the scribes, it says in Mark 9, 14, in, in Mark's uh, rendition of the story, the disciples and the scribes were arguing with one another. We don't know what they were arguing about. We'd basically be speculating to figure out what they were arguing about. Maybe they were arguing about Jesus and his identity. We don't know. but so, And we know that Jesus on the mountain had just brought Peter, James, and John. So the other nine disciples must have been left in the valley, and they're the ones arguing with the scribes. And it says that, uh, behold, a spirit sees this boy, and he suddenly cries out. So, behold, this man, this one man, this father from the crowd cries out to Christ. You have this great crowd of people, and this one father who's desperate to get to Christ cries out. So loudly that Jesus notices. And he comes to Jesus and kneels down to him in Matthew 17, 14. Matthew says that he knelt to Christ. He says, my son is epileptic. He has these seizures. And he suffers severely. Luke says he's suffering from a spirit. He, so Luke uh, assigns demonic influence going on with his epileptic condition. So a spirit, a, de a demonic possession, since he was a child, Mark 9, 21 says, it says in Mark 9, 17 and 25, it made him deaf and mute. He's been deaf and mute since, a, since he's been a child. It also says in Matthew 17, 15, that he often falls into fire and water because of the demonic influence. Since he was a child. You think of the children that you have, like your son or your daughter, and if they had this seizuring and there was nothing you could do about it. No doctor could heal him, no person could heal him, and he was literally trying to drown himself or cast himself in the fire. Couldn't speak or hear. It says he foams at the mouth. This child gnashes his teeth. Why has the boy suffered from this demonic torment since childhood? Have you ever asked that question when you read this? Like, if you were a child who suffered from this, you would be asking that question, right? Why does my child suffer this way? What have we ever done to deserve this? We're not given any reasons, are we? While the passage does not directly deal with this question, I think it is important to acknowledge the tension here that Luke just allows to sit unexplained. Why does this boy suffer this way? And the only answer is, is that God wills. God is sovereign in control of everything in this fallen, broken world. He permits evil to happen. We know this from Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2. We know this from Genesis 45 to Genesis 50, that Joseph, when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then God made him second in command of Egypt, that God did that to save the people of Jacob, to save his family. When his brothers come before Joseph and expects to be killed by their brother, Joseph said, what God, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Nothing happens outside the will of God. John chapter 9, right? When the blind man was healed by Jesus, they took him before the, the Jewish council. They go, well, what did his parents do to just, that the boy was blind? And the boy, the boy didn't do anything. All the answer is that God willed it. Why? So that God could then save him and heal him by Christ. 
Nothing happens outside his will. Psalm 33, verse 10 through 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. James 4, 13 through 15. If the Lord wills for us to go into this town and to do this and do that, it will happen. If the Lord wills. James said. God allowed this boy to suffer so that Christ would heal him there. This is all God's will. To show his glory, to show, reveal his power. He revealed his glory and power on the mountain, and then he showed it by healing this boy in the valley for all to see. In the midst of the suffering and the pain, we must believe that God is sovereign. Proverbs 16 9, the Lord establishes his steps. Revelation 3 7, who opens and no one will shut? Who shuts and no one opens? He is creator, he is Lord, he is sovereign. This is a quote from Margaret Clarkson. She says, May the the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly with the mighty hand of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to him, and evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. Unless he permits it. The Lord wills, he wills. This is a very difficult subject, I believe, I, I understand. But what's the answer to the question of the Father? Why is my child suffering in this way? And the answer is, is because the God wills it. Matthew 10, 29, and no one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will. John 19, 10-11, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Christ talking to Pilate. The wisdom of man cannot see how the providence of God can arrange human actions to fulfill his purpose without any miracle. The whole book of Esther is a book that says what? That God is in control. It doesn't even mention God at all in the whole story. The whole story bleeds and shows us that God is in control of everything. On the next day, Jesus came down the mountain. The Lord does all that he pleases, Psalm 115.3 says. John 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God was going to reveal his glory through his son, through this healing of his boy, and that's why it happened. No circumstance or frustration, no circumstance can frustrate God's purpose for your life. Do you believe that? The passage that everyone wants to beat up all the time is Jeremiah 29 11. For I know the plans I have for you, right? Everyone's like, all that verse. People use it all the time. That's not talking about you, it's talking about Israel. But it's true, right? I know the plans I have for you. God does know the plans for you. This is a Russell Moore who said that this week, he said about this passage, God has a plan for you in Christ. That plan is not for your destruction, but for your well-being. You're being conformed to the image of Christ by sharing in his suffering. And your ultimate end is not as a victim, but as a victor, a joint heir with the king. How can you know this? You can know it the way that the exiles of old did, not by observing your present condition, but by the word of God, his oath and his covenant. That means your plans may evaporate, your dreams may be crushed, your life may be stuffed out, but but God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise you up with him. That is God's will for your life. His will, his love, his wisdom will fulfill his purpose for you. 
The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. He may use horrible things, painful, chronic, constant, severe, not your fault, embarrassing things to fulfill his purpose in your life. God owns it. His will and love and wisdom are involved in it. Trusting him in adversity when we don't understand what he's doing or why he's allowed some adverse circumstances to occur in your life. We trust him. Why? Because he's going to accomplish his will in your life. He's going to. So we should trust him when we're in difficult situations. Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered in the hands of men. This is verse 44. My father begged for his only son to be healed. This is my son, my only son. Will you heal him? And what does God say about Jesus? He says, this is my son, my chosen one, my beloved son. Transfiguration, the baptism. Yet God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Isn't that interesting in this passage? We will just read right over that. The words that the father says to Jesus and begs him, hey, heal my only son. What does God do? God offers his only son. The sovereign will of God delivered in the hand of men, will love his will, his love and wisdom of God to save us from our sins. Yet God did not spare his own son, but deliver him up for us all. This is a difficult subject, I realize that. The sovereignty of God, God's providence, that is all a difficult subject. We don't want to really talk about that, we don't want to think about it, but we understand that our lives are under the will of God. His sovereign will is over our lives. That should bring you comfort. That nothing happens in your life that's an accident. Nothing happens outside of God's control. It's not like God was on the toilet and he totally forgot about you. He knows you. He knows everything about you. Nothing is an accident. That will bring you hope that God will accomplish his will in your life. Do you believe that? Do you trust him? Can you say, as the psalmist says, do not forsake the work of your hands. Do not forsake your will in my life. Whatever you need to do to accomplish your will in my life, do it. The psalmist says. Your will be done, as Jesus says. But the second point is, is why did the disciples fail to heal? Right, so the father and then the boy, okay, we understand, okay, he had this, had this difficult situation. He's seizing at the base, phony in the mouth. It's a really tragedy. This child is struggling with this condition for so long. And then the disciples, we learn, failed to heal this boy. It says in verse 40 that the father, telling Jesus about the condition of his child, says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. He says, I just couldn't, they couldn't do it. I heard about your disciples. I heard they had power and authority. I heard that they were healing people. I heard they were raising, they were uh, passing out demons from people. I heard that they could do this, and so I went with them to them, and they failed. Christ gave them authority and power when he sent them out. So their authority and power has was dependent on Christ. Christ granted it to them. It was not something they earned. In this situation, they didn't have the power or ability within themselves to cast the demon out. They failed to discern the strength of the demon. They were overconfident. Maybe they showed basking in their recent success. And even they even said in Matthew 17, Hey Jesus, um, why did we not, why were we not able to cast it out? And Jesus says, Because you have little, you have little faith. The littleness of your faith is the reason why you failed. 
They had faith in themselves, but their faith was misplaced. We're not, they weren't lacking in knowledge or experience or power. They lacked faith in the source of their power. The faith that Jesus says that all you need is the signs of a mustard seed to move a mountain. They failed to ask for the proper faith. That's the problem. They failed to ask. It's not like they were, they, were, they were empty of knowledge or experience or power. It's because they didn't ask. Didn't trust God. <coughs> Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long have I been with you and there with you? Verse 41. Jesus says that nothing will be impossible for you if you have faith. Regardless of the, of the difficulty, but faith and trust in God's provision is the source of accomplishing any difficult situation, Jesus says. And this really gets me going because, I, so I go to these local Baptist Association meetings because of my, my job with the school. And every time I go to these meetings, I hear the same broken record complaints and grumble. Well, there's, you know, baptisms are down this week, or baptisms are down this year, oh my goodness. And it's like crying, grumbling, and complaining, and I just roll my eyes at them, and I'm like, well, here's what you need to do. You need to get on your, on your knees and pray, and stop always assuming that we can just do something else, and it will accomplish what you want to accomplish. It drives me crazy. But I'm not any different. If I complain or grumble about the church or someone, and, and I'm like, well, I don't understand why this person won't come to Christ or why this person won't come to church on a regular basis. I, I don't understand, but yet I never pray. And we just think that this difficulty is just so big and so large that there's no way out of it, and then we fail to pray. It's the whole lesson from the feeding episode, right? They couldn't feed the, the people, and Christ provided Resourcefulness and ability and knowledge and experience is not the answer. We always see that as the answer. We need to hire someone or we need to get people in our church that are resourceful, that are full of ability and knowledge and experience. That's not the answer. The answer is recognition of your inadequacies and total dependence on God. His will for you. His mission. It's His mission. Not our mission. It's His mission. He's the one that will provide. People all over the world will be conformed to the image of his son. That is his mission. If we pray to that mission, it will be accomplished. That's his will. I mean, for goodness sake, we just need to pray. Stop struggling and grumbling all the time and pray. And seeking God's wisdom, trusting him, and then praying. His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said... This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer, he says in Mark 9, 28. Simple, you failed to pray. Basically, you failed to ask. Ask and it will be given to you, right? What is what Christ's whole mission is to do this, to raise, to uh, heal the sick, to cast out demons. This is why Christ came, right? In, in Luke 4, 18. He sends them out to do this in a situation where there's a demon-possessed boy. They failed because they didn't ask. They simply didn't ask. That's why he says, how long must I be with you and put up with you? Verse 41. It's like, come on, guys. How many times do we need to teach you that you have to trust me? I know what I'm doing. You do not know what you're doing. You aren't, and you're not, uh, you're not smart enough. You're not full of experience enough. You're not resourceful enough. You just lack faith. 
Trust me. Trust my will. Trust my love. Trust my wisdom. Express your trust and faith in me through prayer and action. Point number three is what can you learn from the Father? What can you learn from the Father? Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look to my son, for he is my only son. He recognized his own inability to fix his son. He can, he's completely inadequate. He heard about Jesus. He went to find him in the great crowd. He cries out to Christ. He's desperate. His only son is in constant torment. He begs him. gets on his knees. Heal my only boy. He cries out for help to Christ Jesus. And then he brought the boy to him, right? He's not hanging out in his house saying, I hope Jesus stops by and heals my boy. No, he finds Christ. He brings the boy. He cries out to Christ. He trusted that Christ could save his son. He said to him, if you do anything, have compassion on us and help us in Mark 9, 22. He has the power and authority to do so. All things are possible for one who believes, Jesus says. He possessed an imperfect faith. This father did not have perfect faith. That's why he says, I believe, help my unbelief. He recognizes that he doesn't have enough faith. His faith is imperfect. And he, what does he do? He asks for faith. We are helpless as well if we rely on ourselves. Our ability is not enough. Our knowledge is not enough. Our faith is not enough. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. The father of this boy recognizes that his faith was inadequate. And he cries out to Christ to help him believe. He has an imperfect faith. A faith of a mustard seed, Christ says. Not the faith of an oak tree, but the faith of a mustard seed. Ask Christ for faith, and you can move this mountain, Christ says. Nothing is impossible for the one who cries out to Christ. Not na 